0: Need to hydrate but tired of plain old water? You need Rebellious Infusions. No sugar, no calories, loaded with antioxidants to boost your immune system. An L-thionine for brain health. 10 organic flavors and convenient liquid packets. Just add 16 ounces and you are on your way. Rethink your drink at drinkrebellious.com. For 10% off your next purchase, use the code 99999.
1: Hello, welcome to the Winner's Find A Way show. I am your host, Trent Clark, CEO of Leadershipity, CEO of AIM, Athletic Influencer Marketing, and always excited to talk to a fellow friend, Cody Garaguzlu. Man, that's not easy, brother.
2: Well done, well done. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Trent.
1: Thank you, thank you. Scientific founder of Imaginastic. This is a really unique one for me. Super excited to have Cody on the show because Cody's doing some revolutionary stuff and it's pretty cool. Can't Well, I'm going to say a Kansas native. You're not really a Kansas native, right? Persian guy, but you've been in the States a long time as an army brat, but really spent most of your childhood years in Kansas. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah. I was born in Colorado. Uh, grew up in Louisiana from third grade on was in Manhattan, Kansas. As my dad was in the army.
1: And you've done a lot of international travel, which I love. So. I'm sure when you tell people like, yeah, I grew up in Manhattan, they're like, oh, yeah, we love the Big Apple. That's awesome. New York. And you're like, oh, no, no, not that Manhattan.
2: I always say it's the little apple.
1: (laughs) The little apple of Kansas State, by the way, in Manhattan, Kansas. So did you live at home or on the Army base when you were uh, going to Manhattan or at Kansas State or did you actually do the dorm thing?
2: Uh, it's funny because, yeah, so I lived there from third grade. My parents actually moved out for college, so they left and then oh, they left left me the house. Oh, that's um, pretty good. That's not bad. not Yeah. A, I, it. yeah.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, Cody, before we get rolling here, tell them where they can find you. I know people have some questions. We're going to be talking about something very specific with Cody because he actually is a rocket scientist, which, you know, I love having on the show, right? We talked to one percenter, so I just bring in a rocket scientist, right? What Cody's really discovering and doing over at Imaginastics is incredible. And we're going to really dive into Alzheimer's and really how the brain is functioning and early detection stuff. It's going to be pretty amazing. And so, Cody, when someone reaches out to you, LinkedIn, how can they find you?
2: Yeah, so you can you know, reach out to me, Cody at You and reach out to me on LinkedIn. I mean, those are the good ways to get a hold of me.
1: Yeah, write down his name, because if you mess it up on LinkedIn, you actually won't find him on on LinkedIn. You have to spell it right on LinkedIn, <laughs> but you will. And the nice thing is this is not like Tom Jones. You will find Cody very quickly if you can spell correctly.
2: That's right. And, you know, I think it's the only Cody Gargoozle. I actually have my personal email address. Don't reach out to me there, but at gmail.com got the last name. So that's how. Unique it be.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say you're not gonna have a problem probably securing that on Gmail. That's pretty good. That's that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. I can't get my own. I couldn't get my own. All right, well, cool. So, you know, now family, where are you? You have your wife and a couple children, where are you living now?
2: Yeah, so we live in Lake Nona, Medical City, Orlando, Florida. Okay since April. Yeah, new arrivals loving it here. Wow, okay. So you're still
1: saying that after a summer in Florida. That's impressive, actually, that you can say that.
2: Yeah. I don't mind the heat. I don't mind the humidity. Um, I enjoy that. Yeah. We lived in Boston for eight years. So, you know, I think, and then growing up a little in Louisiana. uh, So I I enjoy it actually here.
1: Yeah. No, you know, that Boston winter is no joke, right? So like uh, it will be much, uh, much milder this, uh, this winter in Orlando. So excited about talking a little bit about obviously nuclear physics, quantum physics space, what you guys are looking at so cool because your early detection now and I don't want to like you know steal your thunder here but your real early detection is is the fact that you've got a lot of research base that tells a lot of people, you know, maybe precursors and challenges they may have in Alzheimer's down the road. Is that fair?
2: Yeah. And what I mean what we do is we map the vasculature of the brain and, and we look for abnormality that's associated with the disease. So blood brain barrier leakage. Every single person who has cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, will have blood-brain barrier leakage. There are changes in the vascular density that happened really early on, and we showed the process of aging in small animal models. So we, we measure the structure, the function, and the leakage of the brain in a really unique, uh, new way. Yeah. Using MRI, yeah.
1: That's pretty cool. And so, as we dive into that a little bit, because when we're into your childhood, what most people don't know about you is you did not start out as wanting to be a rocket scientist and a quantum physics expert, travel the world, study abroad all over the place, Paris, Switzerland, Madrid, like doing it all right. You wanted to be a guy like me, man. You wanted to be a ball
2: player. I wanted to play baseball. Yeah. Yeah. What was your spot? Uh, pitcher. Okay. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was too bored to be anywhere else. So. Okay. <laughs> you
1: wanted to be right in the middle of the action, bring the heat. Right. And did, and you brought this and played pretty hard up to a certain age or how to go?
2: Uh, so I yeah, I played until I was probably 12. And, you know, I had a unfortunate sort of falling out with baseball. But before that, I was an Atlanta Braves fan. And um, it's funny, because I, you know, my dad always watched baseball, we'd always sit around, everyone was watching baseball. We celebrated 1995 victory of the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it, bro. <laughs> Cody, I don't want to talk about you it. You
1: were on the <laughs> other end of that right where wet went. You went right for the jugular, too, dude. I was like, oh 1995
2: oh, one, huh? So, yeah. so you could so just try to get you primed up for my pain. So fast forward, uh, you know, so, you know, how, how old are you at this time? Like 1995? I was born in 87. Okay. So you're
1: you're a young dude. Like, you know, this is like priming, you're loving, like, who's who's on that team? Like Glavin and Maddox. Was Maddox there yet? Was he already there? Yes. Maddox was um, there? And uh, Stevie Avery was he Denver, there yet? Jones, Andrew Jones was probably center field. He was, uh, a, he was a he was a young prob- sc- probably starter. Dave Justice was a hero. It's such a dynamic group, man. So that's pretty cool. John Smoltz also a Michigan kid, so you he know I paid it. him for you know costing me a lot of money, but you know <laughs> like whatever, good for him. So that was so, I mean, you know, like, hey, okay, man, you're seven, eight years old. You're a Braves fan. Our teams winning the title We're good. They're, they were really good during those years. Yeah. right? And so that was pretty awesome. What changed?
2: So, yes, I was pitching for this uh, City League team, UCT. And, you know, it's funny because that year we won one game. It was the last game we played. It was really the first time I really got into pitching. And by the end of the season, man, I, I was pretty good. I could throw the ball pretty fast anywhere I wanted it. And so when we got to the championship, we played the, the toughest team. Uh, most of the kids on that team was a traveling team and, and we crushed them, man. They couldn't even hit the ball. You know, I think they, one of the guys hit the ball. I got scared. It went up, you know, up and over. We got him and we won the whole championship, you know, it was like, you know, three, four games up in there with these guys. And so I was kind of riding on that high. And then the next year into eighth grade for me, I, I was on another team that coach, he didn't let me pitch not sure what was going on. And uh, actually, actually, I should rewind right before that. So I tried out for the City League team after that, right? So we won the thing. I did really well. People knew me. I tried out for the team. And so went into this guy's house. He like lived in the neighborhood. Dude had a, a setup downstairs to throw the ball, see how fast it goes. And I didn't get selected for the team. And the reason why that hurt was because, so the main guy who was pitching, I mean, he was throwing faster than me. I was throwing like, I don't know, a little over 60. Guy was throwing like near 75. Yeah. Like I get that. But the next guy after him, he was terrible, but he was the coach's kid and uh, one of the assistant coaches. So they selected him over me. And so that hurt. So I was kind of felt like, man, this is bullshit. So I didn't get on the traveling team. So then the next year in eighth grade, I went to play. I was baking all season to pitch. You know, the coach never let me pitch. And then one game late in the season, uh, they needed a pitcher. So they let me in. And I was excited. I was happy. But I hadn't practiced, you know, since last year, right? And I didn't understand how important practicing was and in my mind. I was still in that spot. Yeah. So, I mean, I just stunk it up out there. And it was just a, it was just a bad experience combination of bad coaches. I just quit playing the game after that, unfortunately. So
1: yeah, I think it's happens to a lot of kids, man. There's a lot of daddy ball, right? Where there's a lot of like, Oh, Hey, uh, I'm going to sponsor the team and my kid gets to play second base, right? Every game. And uh, it's like, Oh it's like how's that work, you know? So there is some of that going on and it's not uncommon. And I think kids get we know it doesn't just exist in baseball, like it exists in all the sports, right? I read some quote about the, the only kids ruining uh youth sports are their parents. <laughs> so now here's another thing about you is that you're a dual citizen. You know, your world-class travels took you studying all over the place in um, Madrid, Switzerland, and of course, in Paris, where you
2: met your wife. That's right. Yeah, I met her on a study abroad, in 2007, still in college. One summer, I met her over there and went back to the States for my junior year. We talked on the phone and fell in love, at, I think at a distance. And then I got a scholarship to go study particle physics at the ETH in Zurich. So I got that thing paid to be kind of nearer. Closer. <laughs> Closer. So she would take the train SR at least once a month. And then I came back, spent a year in the States, and then finished my two bachelor degrees, physics and mechanical and nuclear engineering. And then I did my my master's over there in Paris to be nearer uh, yeah. in biophotonics.
1: So your your baseball career ends and now you're a 15-year-old <laughs> kid heading into your freshman year in high school. And you're thinking, you know what? If baseball's not going to work out, maybe rocket science is what I'm thinking. So you know, Clearly nuclear physics. physics, maybe something like that.
2: Yeah, I really wanted to study nuclear physics. I remember just sitting sitting down with my friends one day talking about it, and then something sort of switched in my mind, and I started taking like summer classes in math. And by the time I got into you know freshman year of college, I was already in calculus three. I finished my math like after the first year, which is
1: uh, it was just coming easy to you. Like that was just never a
2: challenge. No, it wasn't. But I think it's kind of grievous as well for the uh, for the American system to. We just go through calculus and some matrix theory and some differential equations and uh, there's so much more there to math. So I feel like we should hit it harder. <laughs> but whatever. Was well, it's true, right,
1: because you know, we're certainly seeing that in the East, right? They're hitting math hard and we're we're coming off it. Right, we're getting less and less. It feels like, like, oh, that's hard. Like, and you know what? You probably shouldn't know. <laughs> like, wait, wait, wait a minute. So, yeah, I do think there's. A, I mean, you got to be thinking about that now with two kids, right? That are both yeah. coming school age, and one obviously they're a, a long time at twelve. But yeah,
2: I mean, what do you think about? Do you think the system's a lot different now than when you went through? I think the American school system is pretty similar to how it was when I went through, and I think it's. What I've realized is that it's really a responsibility of the parents to uh, follow through, find out what gifted programs are there to push your kids, teach them, you know, math in the summer and just really the parents got to push it. Otherwise, you know, if, if you just kind of let it go, you're not going to get the right education. Yeah. That's what I've done for my 12 year old. Now he's a couple years ahead in math. Proud of him. It's funny that you say that Cody, because you know, as a kid, like I can imagine,
1: you know, my summer's going to be filled with, you know, I don't know how many, probably 50 baseball games or whatever, you know, mowing lawns and my mom going, Hey, you're here to go to math camp. I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I'm not going to math camp. Like I would not have thought about that. And you know, it's funny cause you know, I'm, I'm a little older than you are, Cody, but when I was a kid, like summer school was for either the very gifted or the kids that were in, in a lot of trouble, right. They were either, you know, missing class, a lot of challenges at home and tough socioeconomic environments that were causing a lot of misclass and things like that. But man, when I think about that, the parents were driving it. It wasn't, I mean, I think some of the kids were like, Hey mom, I want to do this. This is going to be awesome. But you know, always not always probably the social popular kids that were like, Hey man, you're going to do math class this summer. Like it's going to be awesome. Math camp, right? Like how'd that go for you?
2: I don't know that I was in the most popular kind of thing. I was kind of I was kind of like a free electron, just kind of buzzing around with so many different people.
1: Uh, How was Manhattan? I mean, was Manhattan like a cool spot to grow up? I mean, I found towns with universities like that who all of a sudden create a lot of different resources, create a very different environment for cities.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was, you know, about 500 kids per class, which I think was quite large for, you know... Manhattan and Kansas, you know, could could otherwise be a small town. And then a lot of those students are international students because of all the people coming to the university. And so I thought that was awesome, actually. I had a lot of yeah. friends who are international, and and that's probably something that got me interested in, you know, studying abroad.
1: Yeah, I do think that's a cool environment, man. I think it's always something I appreciate when I go into towns that don't have a college, and you realize there's usually, like, a lot of the people look the exact same, you know, whatever ethnicity and color, whatever. There's not typically strong arts programs, you know. There's not that extra level of like the entrepreneurial centers or math and science centers. Often colleges have the astrology and science stars, and and man, that's a whole other thing, right? Yeah, yeah, not astrology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, usually in the towns where there aren't a college, actually. <laughs> exactly.
2: That's true, man, and you know I, I think the great thing about it now is all this knowledge is at our fingertips, right like oh uh, so we can't easy to learn anything we want on on the web
1: yeah, it's so quick now, right you know like it's the one thing Cody, I didn't really see as a kid, you know growing up and I am I am an absolute lifelong learner though mm-hmm. I did not enjoy being mm-hmm. a student I did not like being a student uh, I didn't like being told what to study, right so yeah. I didn't love that, but, but I love to read and learn, man. And I have just like been little encyclopedia Britannica, man. Like I am like little encyclopedia trying to always learn information. One, one of the ones I missed was I really never saw that YouTube would be such a learning center hmm. to be like, Oh man, someone's done it. And they'll show you like how to do it. And you're like, man, so show me how I build that shelf in the back of your, you know, vision. And they're like, Oh yeah, here it is on YouTube. And like, four minute video. And you're like, dang, dude, (laughs) Like, that's pretty nice.
2: Yeah. And now with AI, I mean, you can, you can ask Bing chat uh, or chat GPT or whatever is your favorite anything. You can just ask off the wall questions and then follow up questions. And then just be taught by, by an AI. I mean, that's that's what I do now. I, I ask the AI engine. I get a lot of things done quickly that way. So I think kids can take advantage of that. The internet, man, it came around when I was, I mean, I remember, you know, we had AOL dial up, right? And so I think you're a decade or two in front of me. Oh, no, I had AOL dial up. but uh, But I had it when I was a kid. So, you know, but yeah, I just think there's like limitless possibilities for our kids now, man.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll tell you how old I am, Cody. I'm so old that we like went to the student like union or there was a student center where we had word processing. So because all I had was a typewriter. So at home, at my house on campus. So if I had to go type a paper. You couldn't do it from home. You had to go to the word processing center and then knock it out. And that was way easier, right? Than typing it because typing it was now like, oh, my gosh, how many mistakes can I make? Right. Even now, I mean, 53 years old, right? I look back as a student of high school age, and you think about all the classes we went through, and I'm like, yeah, typing, probably my most valuable class. Like, it's the one I use all the time. And that's not to downplay my math, because that's obviously very important as an entrepreneur, right? But man, I just think like, use case, like, typing's a big deal.
2: How fast can you type? How many words per minute? I don't
1: know, man. I I, I don't want to test it, but I'm probably like a forty plus guy, right? Like, I mean, I'm not like just super slow, right? I can move. I mean, my yeah. kids are my kids are impressed. That's how that's yeah. how good I am, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. A, it, you know, it's not easy to impress a twelve year old, you know. It is not easy. That's true. <laughs> so let's come back to you get on this path, and is everything just unicorns and rainbows? Like, yeah, rocket science is going to come eat I mean, you have like. 600 degrees now. So, you know, you're a career student and you've been through this in a lot of ways, just continuous education. And some of the challenges along the way, let's talk through some
2: of the hurdles. Hurdles. Yes. Let's talk about that. So probably one of the kind of closest to me hurdles was, you know, so by the way, I mean, you know, you go from the education system to sort of from learning to creating something at some point, right? And so when you do your master's, you have a master's thesis, you're going to do some research. When you do your PhD, it's focused on research. And when you do research, then now you're creating something. So you're a PhD student, but probably even that terminology should be changed, right? For those PhD students out there. And so when I finished my PhD, so I went to Boston to a nanomedicine laboratory for my PhD and I finished it, did my postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School, Mass General Hospital. And so I had invented... The technology that the company is focused on commercializing. And when I started the company, the plan was to make that company actually with my, uh, the guy I worked under doing my PhD. And it just seemed natural. And when push came to shove, actually, I got this guy like, you know, three, 400K, got him some money, you know, mine <laughs> wrote the grant, got his name on it and, and, and some stuff like that. And, and then when push came to shove to create the company to make this thing move forward, he sat me down in his office. You know, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Mass General Hospital. I come to his office at Northeastern, sit down, and he tells me, you know, Cody, nobody's going to be able to do this but me. And essentially, like, you know, he wanted me to work for him and no equity, no ownership. That was a no good thing for me. So, you know, so he a,
1: basically told you you couldn't go forward without him. yeah. And now he wanted to paint you in a corner where yeah. pay me or, you know, I'm going to be the principal or just give me what you've created and I'll make us,
2: it'll, it'll be fine. He wanted all ownership. Yeah. So that, that obviously was terrible. So there was some patents involved. So I, I went to fight that, you know, I fought that from, you know, early 2018 until I started the company in July, 2018, and we did get the uh, patent rights all of them eventually exclusive, the fight kind of continued on until he flopped on the, you know, on pushing the sort of competition, but he wanted to compete too. But um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a dark time initially, right? Because you're a postdoctoral student, you know, he's telling you he's gonna take it all. He's the, you know, such high level professor at the university. Yeah. You know, he was even messaging my, my colleagues at Mass General Hospital telling him, hey, you know, Cody can't work on the project anymore that he got the funding for, for these studies we were doing. And so I, it was a huge kind of dark fight and uh, never spent more more time praying, I think, than at that time. But uh, we, we came out on top, you know, and we, um, you know, we made the company and we got funding and from some clinicians who were angel investors got us started. That was a hard time. At the end of the day, that out of the picture, right? So, you know, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have a company with him. I mean, he has a really abrasive personality, you know, yeah. so. I'm not sure it would have worked. So he showed his colors there pretty early, maybe a blessing in disguise at the end of the day. So
1: Well, I, I think the other thing of this is like, you know, praying is important, right? Like getting back to like what's important and what's really I value about this and what's the right thing? Because often through prayer, through reflection, through meditation, you know, our heart shows us the right way, right? And it also shows us, hey, someone's true colors. Maybe this person isn't out for your best. And maybe it's time to separate and get as far away from them as you can. And all those things, I mean, that's also tough when you're a young man and and this is a mentor, right? This is someone who's taking you through some things and, wow, that's that's just not easy.
2: Yeah, that was not an easy time. So, so. let's talk a little bit about challenges you've
1: had with imaging and diagnostics, imaginostics. I mean, this is now uh, becoming... A revolutionary software and imaging system to foresee a lot of potential health hazards, challenges we're facing and walk us through a little bit of that process.
2: Uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it's a technology based on quantum physics in the sense that before I ever sat down at an MRI scanner, you know, I was behind some equations sort of hypothesizing how we can image a little bit differently. My goal was to sort of do quantitative imaging and looking over, and I was in a nan- nanomedicine laboratory. So I was thinking about, you know, delivering, you know, drugs to tumors, you know, my part in the imaging world, you know, so I saw that the, you know, MRI, for example, is a very promising technology, but the, the sort of trouble with it was, is it's qualitative So we're making these, you know, black and white pictures. The measurements that are supposed to be quantitative, you know, fMRI, even, you know, other type of quantitative measurements only work at the end, you know, not at the individual level, but at the population level. So I kind of sat in there looking at equations and I came up with theory about how to do imaging differently to make quantitative images. And so for six months, I just read papers and studied and theorized. And then, you know, in 2012, I started making these first images.
1: So So you focused in on the brain what reason i mean the brain instead yeah. of the heart like you know yeah. in medicine we always either go to the brain or the heart right why the brain
2: yeah the brain it's it's interesting because you know we did i did some work in in cancer and that's where my original ideas were established but brain is such a regular organ there's one way it should be it's very common between people we all have sort of the same parts and so if something is wrong it's kind of an easy place to study things that go wrong and then okay. it's such an important organ obviously for so many diseases. So that was sort of the original reason why I moved to the brain quite early on. Which makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense to me.
1: What do you hope that you can hone in, ultimately discover? And are we talking about treatment?
2: Are we talking about prevention? Prevention, and we can help with treatment. And so one of the things we've been doing is using these measurements that work now at the individual level, So really what the value proposition is, is that we have a 10 times, 10x better vascular imaging technology with, for the first time, measurements that work at the individual level for the microvascular structure, for how are those vessels functioning, and is there any leakage such as blood-brain barrier leakage? And so what we did in small animal models uh, was look at genetically modified animals, APOE4, for example, which is the single most significant genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. And we looked at the aging process, so 20-year-old human equivalent, 60-year-old human equivalent, for example, and we can see that, uh, you know, early on, there, there are some surprising features in the brain that really are indicative of disease that tell us, you know, with great promise that we should be able to detect this thing early because we know that things are happening in the brain decades in advance from those large population studies. And so we were able to measure actual increases in, in vascularity in the brain early on. And so we see that actually the brain does a really good job of hiding disease. And it's because it can accommodate for that dysfunction by, for example, increasing the vascularity. Now you've got more supply of nutrients in an area that otherwise might've had some kind of uh, vas- you know, dysfunction. And so we see this trend of sort of hyper to normal looking to hypovascularization that happens with neurodegeneration. And that's surprising. That's something that people weren't able to measure before. And so essentially by looking at the vascular density by looking at the function of the vessels and the leakage, we can characterize, uh, first of all, the aging process for healthy aging for you and I and everybody in whichever organ, and then the disease process and how that kind of progresses. So in that sense, we have diagnostics because there's some vascular abnormality there, we can detect it. Uh, but then in the sense of uh, therapeutics, we can help companies that you know have these very exciting novel therapeutics, but how do they test them? How do they tell if they're working? it's really hard to get people early on in the disease process. And then even more so hard to tell if your drug's doing anything effectively.
1: Yeah. Well, it, and I don't think a lot of people think about that, that, Hey, this disease is readily available and our brain is actually functioning to hide it. Like it's it's functioning to go into motion to treat it, right. That's what it's trying to do. It, Cause our body's this miraculous system of like prevention, right? Like our immune system is this freaking tank of a thing, man. Like, it's just like the strongest, most powerful system in the world, right? And so it's like preservation, preservation, and more preservation, right? So the brain is working on this, even though the body, like it's all present, all knowing, the brain's like, oh, preservation mode, right?
2: Yeah, and then, you know, you mentioned the immune system. You know, one interesting sort of disease, disease of the immune system in the brain is multiple sclerosis. Yeah. where, you know, the brain is constantly attacking this axonal sheath. And then also, and that's the autoimmune sort of part of the disease. Let's say the good actors are trying to put the thing back together. And so yeah. in terms of the vasculature there, it's actually known that you have an increased vascular density with MS early on. And, um, you know, to accommodate for all those immune cells that are there that need metabolism too. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's a very interconnected thing, the blood vessels and the vasculature. And so I'm always thinking, you know, how can we, with our technology, which characterizes the vasculature in this really precise way, how can we use that to get, you know, insights to the pathophysiology of disease, um, early detection, advanced therapies? How do you go faster,
1: right? There's, medicine's been out there a long time, right? And you can't, uh, my assumption is, is you're not going to get, we have 330 million in America, right? And I don't know how many you have in France, but like, you're not going to get, 200 million images of the brain on your system in the next, you know, 48 months, right? So how do you go and get the learnings? And you know, what we're really good at in entrepreneurship is hyper learning, right? We really learn from each other really well. And the beautiful thing about the medical community is like, most things are data driven, right? I mean, it's, it's probably the one thing I love about John Hopkins, you being a Boston guy, right? Is, is, yeah, John Hopkins measures about everything, right? And so you're just like going, man, let's just look at the data to assure we're moving in the right direction. So one thing I really love about them is when they see the data go the wrong way, they're like, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> like, this thing's not working,
2: right? So what do you see? That's, that's right, to go faster. I mean, it's funny that you use the word data-driven. I mean, we have a new technology. We acquire a new type of data, right? It's not the type of thing where you can, you know, take old data and apply AI. And so the trouble has been is that AI, for example, can only find what's in the data. So we got this new data, yeah. this new quantitative data. So to move faster, we need to get data sets for each disease. We, yeah. need to, we need to have data sets, at least cross-sectional data sets for, you know, a healthy 20-year-old person. What does the density look like? How do those vessels function? And, and we, we need data sets for the aging process. And so we really just need the data to go faster. And so what we've been doing is applying for grants. So last year we got you know, about a million bucks from the National Institute on Aging uh, to look at mild cognitive impairment. And so that's at Brigham Women's Hospital, you know in Boston where I'm from, yep. uh, you know doing it at University of Miami as well, a second site. So we're going to characterize you know 18 to 35 year olds, 70 year olds, and 70 around year olds that have cognitive impairment. So these are some data points on the aging spectrum and some disease. Uh, we also got a grant uh, from the National Institute of Mental Health to map the neurofunctional response to drugs. So the point is, is that if you have anxiety or depression, there are drugs that are out there that have a finite response and they are active in your brain for a certain period of time. But it's difficult to develop new drugs and understand how they're working compared to the old ones or the off target effects and so on. So we can make these maps in real time of is the activation in that part of the brain going up? Is it going down? And so we can compare between different drugs. So we got, you know, so really we need the data and for that we need money. So you got to put, you know, money into the thing to run these studies. So it's yeah. very R&D intensive, which is financially intensive.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's awesome, man. So for all the folks out there that we always talk about, hey, winners find a way, right? Winners when shown data that they're losing find a way to win. How do you win this thing, Cody? How do you get it done faster? The right team members, the right partners. What what are you looking for?
2: We got strong partners, man. We got a strong team. Uh, We're raising funds. We're raising funds. We're raising about 2 million bucks. We have some very exciting partners. I mean, in terms of academic partners, you know, we've got, in addition to the ones I mentioned, University of Pennsylvania. It looks like we're going to get a grant 800K for TBI. Mm -hmm. So, not the acute TBI, but that chronic TBI six months after. Yeah. And measuring that vascular abnormality that's there that's going to lead you to a propensity to develop other conditions, right? which is what the survivors need is drugs for that condition. Also Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. You know, I always work with, you know, directors of radiology in that case, director of neuroradiology and so on. So there, you know, and now we're, we're starting to work with um, a leader in precision diagnostics. We're under mutual NDA, so I can't really disclose too much, but we're gonna do full body vascular mapping for their clients in a large clinical study. So there we're kind of, you know, not only moving away from the brain, but we wanna characterize all the organs. Our technology is really the only one that would enable you to do preventative vascular imaging because we don't use the gadolinium contrast that MRI usually uses. Uh, yeah. We use an iron supplement. <laughs> so really it works yeah. with an iron supplement. And so, you know, in that that's sense, the we can do the, arm pull. I mean, like, that's nice. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge bonus
1: yeah cody this has been awesome man like like we could probably talk about this for another freaking two hours because i love it people are probably going man you guys are really talking science today (laughs) yeah i
2: love it right well sports man sports like the injuries that you get in sports yeah i mean the
1: eyes are real that's such on the front burner for everybody right now and you know and i think the other thing is is that you know in reading i love the movie gifted hands you know he talked about you know separating the brain on two siamese twins right and how that's gonna work and you know so there's just this background on the brain that everybody's trying to calculate and work through. And it's probably one of the organs that we know least about everyone's really worked really hard on the heart and you know, the vascular system inside the bloodstream system. Right. And that now, but I I love the way you picture this, which is like, Hey, this is a a pretty finite organ. that's measurable amongst all of us. It doesn't, it should not, you know, in the normal functioning, we shouldn't have these massive adaptations and changes. So when it does, it's indicative of so much more. Right.
2: Exactly. Right.
1: Yeah. And obviously with the heart with multiple streams in and out, like there's a lot of things that come in blockage and repair and possible utilization efficiencies. And so there's a lot of different across the board. None of our hearts probably look the same, right?
2: Yeah. And the heart's important too. I mean, you know, there's areas of ischemia in the heart, some disease and those areas of ischemia by definition, you just have, you know, the vascularity is lower, right. And so there is a huge application for our technology and, you know, cardiovascular imaging, replacing some of those invasive imaging procedures, x-ray, fluoroscopy, you know. But, yeah, we are focused on the brain. I mean, that's where we found funding, which is the traction, which is, you know,
1: so. Is a common person just coming to you off the street and saying, hey, I'd like a scan? Imaginostics, are they knowing about you or is this still really regulated by the data, bringing it into the medical community first?
2: Well, we're, we're in the R&D phase, right? So, you know, we got another 725 k investment last year from the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation as well. And, you yep. know, those funds, whether they be grant-based or foundation-based, are into R&D for looking at, you know, cross-sectional studies to, to do that characterization there will be people who are involved in those studies. I mean, with the preventative diagnostic company, 150 of their clients will just get scanned, that's full body vascular scan. But it's not something that's other than that, at this point, you know, readily available. We, we're looking to make it available through our partner so that yeah. anyone can go to one of those clinics yeah. and get scanned. So we're, we're now working to make it available, working through the regulatory hurdles as well. So like you said, how do we, how do we get there and get it faster? It's is probably funding. You know, I have a pitch deck. I'm happy. To
1: it's always back to money, right? It's always yeah. back to and money. That's, that's awesome. For everybody, thank you for joining us. Winners find a way. Love it, Cody. Love what you're doing. You know, such an important technology built into our society that's going to be a game changer. Obviously, it already has been. And, man, I, I just love where it's going. And, obviously, the traction, uh, the flywheel, how it's picking up and really starting to spin for you and and move quicker, and obviously, you know, just the serving of humanity, the value this is going to bring ultimately such a special uh, gift. So very cool, Cody, big contribution, man.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, that's like the long-term goal is like I return humanity back to the garden, man. I mean, you had Noah and so on living a thousand years. I mean, our goal is to help therapeutics, you know, with these advanced endpoints uh, get cleared, right? So that we can prolong the health span, prolong the lifespan. The diagnostic that we have is an important piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's what it is.
1: Well, and quality of life. I mean, immediately, like that's just meets right there where, you know, Alzheimer's been such a tough disease on not just obviously the person themselves, but the family. I mean, it is, uh it's impactful at so many layers. And so, man, I mean, it's this huge, huge and great
2: work you're doing, Cody. Yeah, man. And, um, you know, I'm very passionate about it. I hope we can, you know, the, the thing about the vasculature too in Alzheimer's, This year, just finished my two-year term as the co-chair of the Alzheimer's Association Business Consortium. And this year at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, they've extended the common pathologies of Alzheimer's from amyloid and tau to amyloid tau vascular and alpha-synuclein, which is a protein that can be found in a spinal tap. But we really believe that our imaging biomarkers can characterize the aging process and help these uh, early diagnostics as well as the therapeutic to be streamlined. So... It's big. It's big for everyone involved. So,
1: well, for everybody out there, thank you for joining us on the Winners Find a Way show. To my special guest, Cody (laughs) Garaguzlu. Cody, tell them where they can find you again real quick.
2: Cody at imaginostics.com.
1: There you go. Check him out on LinkedIn. He's easy to find on LinkedIn. You can spell that name right. You got him. So, thanks, Cody. For everybody else, we'll see you every Friday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific on the Winners Find a Way show. LinkedIn Live, YouTube Live, and Facebook live. We'll see you then.
0: If you are a business or organization leader and want expert advice, coaching, and guidance to help you build your team to be the best, then email Trent directly at Trent at leadershipity.com or connect with him at Trent M. Clark on LinkedIn.